It's pretty, pretty gritty, really, isn't it? I mean, this chapter does not pull any punches whatsoever. If we just read it, if we didn't, if we took this chapter, we took this account, maybe if we changed the situation a little bit and we, we used names which were more familiar and we used a perhaps a structure of writing which was more to do with today, more of a contemporary way of writing, we would be absolutely shocked by what we see written in this chapter. Just to recap, what we see is shocking behavior, the judgment of God, shocking behavior. I mean shocking behavior, not, not, not just shocking because it happens to be in the Bible. I would suggest to you that this behavior that we see written in this particular chapter is shocking no matter what culture we happen to be living in. Whether we're living in a past culture, whether we're living in a culture of today, this is incredible stuff. But what makes it even more incredible is that we read it contained within the Bible. The Bible which we as 21st century uh, thinkers tend to understand the Bible at best to be at least the, uh, the imparting of good thought from God to humanity. You might reject the idea of the Bible. You might think it's all sorts of various concoctions, and we can talk about that uh, in other contexts. I'd love to get into a conversation by, about that. But if it is the Word of God, which is what we believe it to be here in this church, then it is incredible that these events are contained within it. If we remind ourselves that the first chapters of Genesis, certainly up to Jan Genesis 1 to 20, is really critical in us coming to terms with the kind of world that we live in today. When we look around at some of the things that are going on, some of the things that have been in the news literally in the past few days, we might ask ourselves, what is going on in this world? The first 20 chapters of Genesis give us a foundation, give us a basis on which we can begin to understand why we are living in the kind of world that we do live in. But what we also see in Genesis, early part of Genesis, Genesis chapter 11 and now Genesis chapter 19, we see the dramatic intervention of God in judgment and justice. Dramatic God in the face of humanity. We see that twice. That's very important for us to see that. Secondly, those two events, those two dramatic events, the flood and now Sodom and Gomorrah, they, if you like, particularly Sodom and Gomorrah, the event around Sodom and Gomorrah, become, if you like, they become almost a, a shorthand, a signpost that is used then throughout the rest of the Bible. Sodom and Gomorrah as an event is mentioned a further 27 times in the rest of the Bible. It's mentioned from here right the way through the Old Testament, right the way through the New Testament, and is included in the final book of the Bible in Revelation. It's as though God is placing for us at this moment in time and in our understanding at least some kind of a marker or a signpost for us to come to terms with as we ask the question, what is the world like and what is God like? We have a statement which continues right the way through. 
The big question that we have as we read this significant marker, Genesis chapter 19, the big question that we have, and maybe it's a question on your mind right at this point in time as a 21st century listener, hearer, reader, whatever we might be uh, this afternoon, we find for many of us the idea of this kind of divine justice just sticks in our throat at best, or we find it so offensive that it switches us off from the rest of the message of the Bible. Maybe you're there this afternoon, or maybe you are absolutely holding on to a belief in the Bible, but you still find a chapter like this challenging as you come to it. I want to deal with that really this afternoon by asking three questions. Three questions. The first question is this, Can we live without divine justice? Can we live without divine justice? Second question, can we live with divine justice? Third question, can we ignore the idea of divine justice? So, there's the three questions as we work through this chapter. First question, Question number one, can we live without divine justice? I don't know all of your situations. I don't know that. But if I take, if, you, if I am allowed to make, if you like, a percentage kind of statement, most of us in the West live in a relatively protected bubble of humanity, relatively protected bubble of humanity compared to what might be going on in the world around us. When we live in a relatively protected bubble of humanity, we end up with the opportunity to stand uh, and to, if you like, with kind of liberal thinking, we can make all sorts of statements about how things ought to be and how things ought not to be and how God ought to be and how God ought not to be. It's very easy for us to take, if you like, a liberal higher view and say this is how things ought to be. That is very much bred from the fact that most of us, and not saying all of us, you might be somebody who can uh, testify to the fact of the reality of the harshness of this world. But most of us in this country live distanced from the harsh, brutal reality of human existence. This chapter brings us nose to nose with that reality. But let's just put it into contemporary context, shall we? In South Africa today, rape is so endemic that many women shape their day and assume it to be a day-to-day danger. They assume it to be a day-to-day danger. It occurs in gangs in public without any fear of retribution. In our world, South Africa today, that is a harsh reality of the world that we live in. We do not live in a society, thank God, we do not live at this point in time in a society like that where we fear as women stepping out of our front door because there is every possibility that we might be caught in a gang pincer movement which might gather up every woman who is out in the open between two points and rape them. There is the reality of certain parts of Africa, South Africa today. 
a recent report by uh, Human Rights Watch 2001 reported that 140,000 males were raped in prison in America in 2000. 140,000. One of the prison officers says a young guy going into an open prison has almost zero chance. Another one said, when a young inmate enters an open barracks prison, it triggers a sort of competition among the convicts. I'm going to stop it there. Because all I wanted to do is to put into context what we read at the beginning of this chapter. We remind ourselves in the previous chapter, if you weren't here, reminder again, you can download it off our website. In the previous chapter, Abraham meets with three visitors. And one of the visitors says to Abraham, turns out to be none less than God himself, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. In other words, God is saying, although he knows, he's allowing Abraham to come into his thinking, to come into the process of his assessment of what is going on in the city that is nearby to Abraham. Abraham lives outside of the city. He lives out in the wilderness. He lives in tents. He doesn't live in a city. But his, his nephew Lot has gone and is living in this city. And, and God says to Abraham, this is what it is like. It's a bit like the kind of situations that we have just recounted in America and South Africa. I have heard about it, God is saying. Now, God knows what it is like. But he is allowing Abraham to become part of the awareness of the reality of the situation that he is facing. Now we come to Genesis chapter 19. What we see is that those three visitors have now separated out. The Lord has left and the two messengers that came with the Lord now have now traveled and are in Sodom. They've gone down into the city, they enter into the city, they meet with Abraham's nephew, Lot. Uh, and in meeting with him, they uh, say that they're going to sleep out in the city, uh, in, the, in the town center, out in the open. Wouldn't be particularly uncommon in that particular, um, in that time for people to, to basically camp out as they entered into different places. Uh, and so they decide, that, and Lot knows, he knows what kind of place this is. And he persuades those two visitors, you cannot do that, you must come into my, into my house. You must come under my protection. He persuades them to come into his house and he feeds them. That's the kind of uh, awareness that Lot has for the reality for the situation that those two men uh, find themselves in. And then we see in verse 5... <coughs> that uh, verse 4 and 5, we see that uh, the whole of the city, a whole of the men of the city, both young and old, surround the um, home of Lot. They called to Lot. Where, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. It sounds remarkably like the behavior of certain open prison convicts in America, doesn't it? What is going on? 
I would suggest to you that this is not, although it is, using sex as a means of power, this is not actually principally about sex. It is about a statement of the brutality of humanity, one against the other, that the reality of our human hearts in this world can reach. It's a statement of how bad it can be. It's a statement of saying, I will, at the very basest level, let's put it like this, I could impose my authority on you financially, and you might say, I can let go of all of my money. <laughs> I can impose my authority on you locationally, and you can say, I can let go of all of my liberty. But if I impose myself on you, if I make a statement of my power and my authority over you in a sexual way, I am stripping you of the absolute base identity of who you are. That is what the power of sexual imposition is in the world. It is the most base level of me asserting my power, my dominion, my authority, my offensive subjugation of you and me being exalted. It's the most basic level. And that's what we see going on here. That is absolutely what we see. We see these guys basically surrounding the house and saying, we want to say, you are an outsider and we are going to claim power, authority. We are going to make you nothing. We are going to crush you into nothing. And there is no better way for us to declare that over you than in a sexual way. It is the most base way in which we can make that statement. Before they'd gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. There's the reality of the human condition, folks. But there's something else that I think is remarkable there. We love to think, don't we, that we live in a world where it's just the odd one or two. <laughs> we love to think that that couldn't possibly be me. But what we see declared here is that both young and old on that location, in that place, become the brutalizers in their desire of Lot and the two visitors. The desire that every one of them, it seems, has a desire to become the brutalizers. Why is that? I think it probably works like this, that very often those who are the victims of wrong can so easily become the perpetrators as well. Those who have suffered, those who have grown up in that kind of environment, we pass it on because that's what wrongness does. It spreads. Not on every occasion, not on every occasion, I'm not saying that. But we become driven by the pack. I've used this picture on many occasions. It's a stark picture and it's one that really catches me. We love to think 
that we could not be involved in the horrors of the Holocaust. But the one picture that brought it so clearly to mind to me that I could be there was a picture in my son's uh, uh, textbook when he brought it home from school which showed um, a picture of a normal guy, an, a regular soldier, sat on the bank of a ditch with a machine gun in his, alongside him who was tasked with shooting uh, women and children, smoking a cigarette. And it just hit me. Who is he? He's just an ordinary guy. He's just an ordinary guy. He's probably no different to me. And yet in the context, in the situation, he is swept along, he is carried along. Now when we think about that kind of reality of the human condition, when we see it displayed in its starkness there, what is our response? I would say our response should be two things. Number one, we must say that is wrong. Yeah? We must say that is wrong. It cannot be. There's something deep inside of us. I hope there is something deep inside of us that when we read something as scandalous as that, when we read something as scandalous as the kind of things going on in South Africa and America, that we say that is wrong. And then we say, and there has to be justice. There has to be some kind of justice. But the reality is that when the human condition gets out of control in this way, the justice has to be from outside of ourselves. It has to become bigger than the, than the march of humanity. The justice has to be outside of humanity. We demand it. We say it's got to be. I don't think we can live in a world where we think that somebody can live like this, get to the end of their lives, as we've seen displayed in these past few weeks, uh, and at the end of the life they die and we say, well, that's all it. That's all there is. They've got away with it. I don't think we can live with that. I think deep down we know that we need a divine justice. We need some kind of response which is outside of us. So yes, it is a stark beginning when we see the way the story unfolds. But rather than allowing us to sit in this kind of pontificating moral status high up here saying, God shouldn't do that, let's just get back down into the reality of the human condition and say that should not be allowed to happen. There has to be a response. I think that that's how it should open up in our minds. We cannot live without divine justice. We cannot live without it. The next question I want to ask is, can we live with it? So yeah, we've reached the conclusion perhaps that we can't live without it, but now let's see how it unfolds. The men go into the house, and apart from the fact that Lot tries to appease the man by suggesting that he has their, his virgin daughters as an alternative, we see that the men then cause a blindness to fall on those who are trying to attack them. And then they come into the house and they say to him, right, 
The men, uh, verse um, 12, we, we read this. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry of the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. They're basically saying, right, now, we have fulfilled exactly what we said, what the Lord said we would do in chapter 18. We will not act arbitrarily. We will go down into the city. We will see whether the reality is true. We have seen that the reality is true by first-hand experience, and now it's going to happen. Look at what happens. Lot went out, he spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. Hurry, get out of this place. The Lord is going to destroy the city. And his sons thought he was joking. Now, if you have any kind of um, regular reading of the Bible, that should create a trigger in your thinking because that takes us all the way back to the account of Noah when Noah said, God is going to destroy. And the response is, you're kidding me? That's a joke. It's just, it's a joke. God, does, God doesn't behave like that. Or if there is a God, uh, he's not going to do that. You're kidding me. It can't happen that way. Uh, and they ignore him. And in the end, the outcome is that Lot is persuaded by these two messengers to take his family, his daughters, out of the city and his wife. They literally grab him by the hand at dawn and say, come on, get out. Don't look back. And then the, the, within, I, I would guess, a, a matter of hours, there is an absolute divine response. We see it in verse 23. By the time Lot reached Zoah, the sun had risen over the land, so there's a few hours have passed, then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. And Lot's wife looked back and she became like a pillar of salt. It's incredible, isn't it? Now, Firstly, I think straight away, straight off the bat, number one, we're seeing the outcome of the necessity for judgment. We're seeing God respond. That's the first thing I want to say. Secondly, we're seeing something which is described here <coughs> as um, sulfur burning down from the, from the sky at the hand of God. And many of us who think, oh, come on, come on, that, that, that's just too weird and wacky to think about. Well, maybe not quite so much. I'm not relying on this. But let me just throw out some thinking here. Discovered in the royal palace of Nineveh is a copy in it's carved into stone of an ancient notebook of an astronomer who was observing the sky around this time. What he's found, or what has been discovered, is that there is an account of a meteor strike 
which clipped mountains in Austria. And as that mountain clipped, as the meteor apparently clipped the mountains in Austria, in that area, it disintegrated, created a massive landslide in Kofels in Austria, and literally bounced and created a shower over the Middle East area. It's been described in a, in, um, a scientific, academic book, which you can go and buy on Amazon if you so wish. It's been described as being like a mass of atomic explosions going on in the sky above that area. The kind of thing which would literally create um, glass out of sand. The kind of thing that would appear to the ancient world like fire and sulfur raining down out of heaven. A bit like a massive flood. A flood is a flood. You know, it is water that is just spreading over the land. Now, here's the thing, and here's the critical thing. We can view these things in one of two ways. We can sit back and we can say, well, it's just a flood. It's just a natural occurrence. We can sit back and say it's just a meteor strike, it's just a natural occurrence. Or we can see, as the Bible encourages us to see here, and as it describes to us, we might be able to describe it away in that way, but the Bible says, behind it is the hand of God. God is dealing. And that is exactly how the Bible encourages us to continue to, de to deal and understand with life in this world. Yes, we can explain it away in every way we want to in human terms, but the initiated, those who want to understand that there is a divine perspective to all of this, we are encouraged to see there is the hand of God behind this. In other words, the fact that two messengers ended up in the city beforehand and encouraged Lot and his family to get out of the city before the meteor entered into the world's atmosphere, that they were encouraged to come out was not an accident, but rather was the divine hand of God in amazing grace and mercy. How did it work out in the previous chapter? Abraham saying, look, won't you save the righteous? Won't you save the whole city for 50, for 45, for 40, 30, 20, 10? And God kept on saying, yes, I will. For the sake of 10 people, I'll save the city. 10 righteous, 10 who are connected to you, Abraham. I'll save the city. But they couldn't even find that many. Did God therefore wipe out everybody? No, he saved the few. That is a God of astounding grace. That's amazing. But the other thing that I want to say right at this point to encourage us to think about is do we see, because the Bible doesn't see this, the Bible does not see the death as the judgment. The Bible does not see the raining down of sulfur on the city as the judgment. So, really? I can say that, I think, with biblical authority. Because what we see written in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 is this. 
just as people are destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. You see, it would be great if we could think that we can get away with whatever we want and then it's just wiped out at the end and we're nothing and it all disappears. But the Bible consistently wants us to be seeing we cannot live in that way. The Bible is consistently saying there is a divine perspective which carries our souls into the judgment courtroom of God. What is the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah? Sulfur falling down from the sky? No. Well, yes. (laughs) But it's more than that. It's God introducing, arresting those individuals and carrying them into His courtroom at that moment in time because there is a judgment beyond death. Wow. Now that, is what we see in the hand of Sodom and Gomorrah. There is a moment in time where there is the leave, flee, or stay and face the judgment. Leave and flee or stay and face the judgment. Lot's potential sons-in-law took the decision to stay. And within moments, within hours, They are facing the judgment of God. They are facing the judgment of God. They are not judged by God in one sense. Yes, the moment happens, but they are then facing the judgment of God. What is this judgment? It is immediate. (laughs) You know, one minute you're there, next minute there's atomic explosions going on above your head. It's immediate. It is absolute, and it is overpowering. Nothing can stand in the way. I don't know about you. Were you watching the TV this morning as the uh, TV cameras over in Hawaii were just watching? What's going to happen? Is the tsunami going to hit? It's wonderful news that it didn't hit uh, as a major tsunami and wipe out major parts of, of cities. That's great. It's tremendous. But we can't stand against it, can we? Some things which are just so overpowering, they are going to wash us away. So can we live with it? In the face of that, I would say no. I would say no because of this as well, because we mentioned it earlier, uh, and the, the reality is that the victims of sin become the perpetrators very often. And I would say, hand on heart, I know that applies to me. I am both. I could write on one side of a piece of paper all of the reasons why various situations have caused me to be in situations where I have been the victim of sin. I could write that out. But I equally know that if I write that out on one side of a piece of paper, I could write out on the other side that my response to many of those situations was not one of grace and mercy and humility, but rather was one of retribution and anger and frustration and guilt. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? That's my confession. It's my confession, and I would say that that is our situation for all of us. 
So we can't live without it and we can't live with it. Can we ignore it then? Well, there's two tragic pictures of ignoring in this. The first picture is the sons-in-law of Lot that we've already mentioned. The second picture is the tragedy of Lot's daughters. It is ironic. In fact, the story is structured precisely to be ironic. Their virginity was at stake in the city. As Lot said, I'll chuck you out and protect the visitors. And yet, ironically, that is exactly what is sacrificed by their own doing at the back end of the story. (coughs) As they decide, I will not live. I will not live trusting God for the future. I've been pulled out of a city. Now, think about it. They've had two mysterious visitors, have walked through the door, they've been told to leave, they've heard their father say, right now we're off, we're going, we're leaving. They've had those two visitors disappear up the the road and drag them along with them. They've had their mother, who looked back, had a desire to not be with them, but rather to go back to that city, who is absolutely destroyed as a result of wanting to be there instead of with the protection of God's messengers. They've gone through all of that. They've looked out, as Abraham does, looked out over the plains and seen the smoking devastation. They've seen the impact of God. They've seen the fact that God has intervened, and they have seen the mercy and goodness and kindness of grace and grace of God to say, I will preserve you. I will save you. Come out. I will save you. And yet their decision is not to trust him into the future, but rather to get their father drunk so that they will have children by him. I know there's a tragedy at the back end of this story as we conclude with the story of Lot. Lot isn't seen anymore in the narrative. There's two ways in which we can ignore. We can ignore in absolute defiance like the sons, or we can ignore in sort of passive behavior. I'll I'll accept the benefits to some extent, but I'll not live out in faith. I'll not live out in confidence. And in the face of that, How can we therefore not ignore? If there is the danger that we can ignore in those two ways, how can we not ignore? Well, firstly, we see this. Peter says this. God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Now, that is just right in the face of us, isn't it? It's just right in the face. He's saying, look, this is the reality. God has made an example. It is a timeless example. It's gone down as a signpost, as a shorthand for God's judgment, Sodom and Gomorrah. Don't stand in the face of a God who demands righteousness and obedience. And yet he rescued Lot, a righteous man. I think that is fantastic news. I think that's great news because Peter describes Lot as a righteous man. Now, the reality is, if we've been following the story of Lot, he looks anything but a righteous man. And yet, Peter describes him as a righteous man. 
and he is saved. Because deep down in this messed up life that he is living, there is some semblance of trust and faith in the God of his uncle Abraham. That's how Peter describes it. And then he says, now listen, don't you think God is able to save you in the same way? Don't you think God is able to save you? If he can do it in that situation, don't, think he, don't you think he can do it with you? The great news is, yes, he can do it with us. Why and how? How does God do that when we say, as I said a little earlier, but I'm guilty. I am both the victim and the perpetrator. I am not righteous. I am not righteous. What does God's judgment look like? Crushing, destroying the unrighteous get crushed and destroyed by the hand of God. And there are two things as we've seen going on. There might be some sort of way in which we might like to see this as a natural disaster and yet the Bible says there is the hand of God behind it. Do you know there's another moment a few thousand years later where exactly that same thing happens and it is described by Isaiah in that way. There is another crushing and it looks like the hand of man. It's Jesus. It looks like the hand of man. If you know the account of Jesus' death, he's taken by uh, the Jews, so the Jews have a hand in it. He's taken before the Romans, so that the Romans have a hand in it. It looks like his life is out of control. It looks like he's being taken. It looks like he's at the mercy of the events that are surrounding him. It looks like he's the one who's getting it and it's just whizzing out of control. The wheel has fallen off his life in human terms. That's how it's described in the accounts of the Gospels. And yet Isaiah says this, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. You see that? It was the Lord's will to crush him. In other words, the great news is that when it looks like it's out of control in human terms as Jesus is taken before the various authorities, it is actually God's hand behind it. Just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Just like Sodom and Gomorrah. God's hand is behind it, crushing who? Are you ready? Crushing, effectively, the unrighteous. Wow. Because Jesus is taken. And it pleased the, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for, an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Here's the deal. Here's how it works. God always crushes the unrighteous so that those who he lays his hand upon can be blessed. What goes on in Sodom and Gomorrah? Those who are about to rape Lot are crushed so that he can be blessed. What happens at the cross? Those who don't deserve to be blessed, the offspring of Jesus 
prosper precisely because God's hand of judgment crushes the unrighteous righteous one. Jesus, who wasn't without sin, gets crushed, destroyed, broken, shattered with a divine intervention that looks like human intervention. He is crushed, broken. And yet the great news is that that happens so that those who will trust in Him, those who will take a hold of His hand and run with Him as the messenger to say, flee from the city, flee from the city, might hold His hand and be saved. That is the remarkable message of God because God always crushes the unrighteous. And you say, but Jesus wasn't unrighteous. I know. That's the great news. But I'm unrighteous. And I don't get crushed. Because Jesus gets crushed. Jesus gets obliterated and destroyed by the hand of God. It says He crushes Him. Because what God is doing in Genesis chapter 19, He says this, it's good news. It is good news that I ultimately will always stand up against injustice. We need a God who will stand up against injustice. We desperately, if we do not have a God who will stand up against injustice, all of the horrors, all of the abominations of the events of this world will go unpunished. They'll go unpunished. And we have a God who will judge that wrong, but He'll judge it in one of two ways. He'll say, I will either crush it in my son or I will crush it in those who are responsible for it. Because I am a God who will not allow injustice to continue. But at the same time, I am a God of sublime and incredible grace and mercy. Who will crush my son so that you will not need to be. Sodom and Gomorrah. It will happen like that. And what? We'll be ushered before the judgment of God. We will be ushered. That's what it's saying. It's just like that. Read it in Peter. That's just what it's going to be like. It'll be like that in a moment. And the great thing is, God has sent a messenger, the greatest messenger, no less than His Son, to say, flee. I want to conclude with just one simple question. Will you take the hand of the messenger and flee? It's as simple as that.